Well, welcome to part two okay. of our discussion of Walter M. Miller's A Canticle for Leibowitz. This is going to be uh, even more freewheeling, I hope, than the part one, although somewhat briefer. And uh, someone, I think it was Mark Kennedy, near the end of the last session asked if we were going to talk about uh, the, the background of Walter Miller and why I assume, as it would relate to how he came to write this book, he was, so far as I, I remember, he was trained as, a, as an engineer, and he uh, went into World War II, and he ended up being, what, a tail gunner? Tail gunner in a B-25. In, in, uh, in the European theater, and was uh, one of the, uh, he was in, involved in the bombing of Monte Cassino. Which apparently did not make he was not Catholic. It did, but it, but this uh, this did not make him happy. the 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 use of uh, the use of massive uh, military force against uh, undefended positions like that uh, historical monuments uh, disturbed him. And then the news of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, disturbed him. Uh, even more, and it uh, sort of unhinged him to some extent, and he he became Catholic, and uh, and it was in this context, his horror, his horror of uh, nuclear destruction and the and the demoralization of the human race. Uh, that's the, the the backdrop, because you know the book was written, um, you know. It, he started writing it, I don't know, a dozen years after the end of World War II. I've read some of his early short stories. A lot of them are not very good, but a couple of them sort of foreshadow this. There's a, there's a, uh, some of them are formulaic uh, science fiction stories, but, but that's true also, by the way, of Philip K. Dick. It's even more true. Dick's stories in the 50s are mostly stories Either about uh, civilizations wiped out and we're living in the uh, in the, uh, the the cracks of the pavement, or robots are taking over. Those are Dick's two big things. Interestingly, one of the themes you get in Walter Miller, and I don't think he's borrowing it from Philip K. Dick, although it's he's there first, is this notion that there will become an age when because of n nuclear war people will reject science and technology. So in Miller it's the age of simplification when whatever is left of civilization these lunatics destroy. And you could just imagine those people those people have websites and militia movements and you know when I was involved in various southern causes they would say well Dr. Fleming I know that you like to study of Greek and Latin, but we in the South, we don't need that because we have a high civilization without any of that. Meanwhile, he's got, the guy's wearing overalls and he's got a hayseed. And uh, it was an act. But the point is, you know, this is, this, this kind, when you let, it's, I, I uh, as a good American, I respect the common man as much as anybody, but the common man's not supposed to run things. And when they run things, they tend to run amok. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what happens in the age of simplification. Well, Dick has a, a great story where a, uh, one of the uh, world leader, a member of the ruling class, 
uh, has uh, is supposed to is sent to Detroit to look into a problem. Now, the ruling class consists exclusively of non-white people because white people have caused all the problems, and so white people are now. This is 19, like 1954. White people uh, white created science and technology, and they ruined the world, so they're evil. This guy is, uh, I think, an Asian. So Asian people, black people, Indian people, they're okay. And, uh, but the problem is they've also rejected the skills <clears throat> that the hated racial group has, and so they can't fix anything. And in fact, fixing things is felt to be bad. So everything's falling apart. You know, you open a door, the handle falls off. The, the TV doesn't work. They still sort of got technology, but everything's broken. And so there's, so there's a rumor of a uh, movement, uh, a radical political movement called the Tinkerites. And the Tinkerites uh, fix things. So the Tinkerites, are, their headquarters are in, uh, are in uh, Detroit. Again, this is the 50s when, things, when people made things in Detroit. So this poor guy goes to Detroit, but he knows he has been given a revelation by a prophet, which is that he's going to go to Spain and die of malaria. Because how, how, how can you fix malaria at an age like this? So he goes, there's riots, and you know, he's trying to get to his spaceship, but he's beaten up because they recognize people in Detroit don't really cotton to this kind of fella. And by the way, Black people, Mexican people, Indian people don't like him either because they sort of like the idea that you fix things. When a toaster's broken, you can rewire it. So he's taken up, and, oh, don't worry. Well, some, some people take him up, and they, they say, well, we'll take care of you. They take him to this farmhouse. So what's your name? Tinker? He's Tinker. Yeah, we are the Tinkers who created the Tinkerite movement because we could fix things. Oh, me, as uh, the kingfish would say. Oh, me. And, but finally they said, look, we'll make a deal. You tell the world rulers that there's nothing going on here, and we can give you some. I know what you're afraid of, and we can fix it. Well, what, and so this guy has an amulet, and it turns out the amulet, it's, it's this big uh, collar, and it's full of these little studs, and each one is a penicillin tablet. <laughs> so he gives them six, and he says, "When you when when the or whatever antibiotic it is, when you feel the disease coming on, you take these, and you'll you'll be alive." But but it's the that's the kind of story that people were writing in the years before a canticle for Leibowitz. So this this theme of uh, of simplification. And, the, and, of course, uh, Philip K. Dick knew about as much about engineering as I do. Walter Miller is a trained engineer, and he knows what he's talking about. And he doesn't think that science and technology are inherently evil. And that, that's not the problem. The problem is the human heart. As one great English theologian put it, the heart of man is the place the devils dwell in. Right. I thought you were going to say guns don't kill people. <laughs> <laughs> well, guns don't kill people. Yes, in the back. All right. I, I will bring up something uh, you and I have talked about. We noted that, for one thing, the only hope at the end of the canticle for Leibowitz is that 
Catholic Church, as it has been for millennium, is going off and may survive. And preserving the Latin language. And preserving the Latin language. All right, this, was, this book was written in 1959. Three years later was Vatican II. <laughs> the tragic and, irony, eh, what? Right. <laughs> and we could not help but say, well, this cannot happen now. Yeah, you know, it is, it, this is one of the saddest parts of the book, which is for Walter Miller, the, the, uh, the fate of the world was in the hands right. of the Catholic Church that preserved the moral traditions of, of the millennia by preserving the Latin language and the Latin liturgy. So you have people literally three or four thousand years from now and Latin is still the one unifying language of the world. And of course, I wonder, is this why Walter Miller committed suicide? <laughs> Vatican II drove him over the edge. Yeah, well, he died post-Vatican II. Oh yeah, you know, he killed himself like 10 years later. Has anyone, there? he wrote a sequel, which I was going to read before this uh, meeting, and it's apparently not anywhere near as good, but it is good. And uh, I haven't read it. Has anybody, anybody read the sequel? It's in some oh. editions, oh. one yeah. chapter. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to spoil the yeah. effect of this, so I didn't yeah. even try it. Yeah. But it's there. And uh, there must be information on the net and everything else as to how it's sold. Was this a bestseller? I, I think it sold moderately well. He was writing in the pulp, you know, in the in the in the uh, pulp science fiction pulp magazines and various other places. He was a known person. Yeah, he was writing for science, uh, fantasy and science fiction, right. which was top of the line That's right. for that That's kind right. of That's right. material of the period. But to top of the line for sci-fi is uh, <laughs> whatever you want. It. Yeah. yeah. Art, Art Livingston, since you brought up the question of genre fiction, mm. uh, which is, you know, if you want to make money as a writer and you're not a, a communist revolutionary or a feminist revolutionary, the, the, the traditional way over the past 70, 80, 90 years has been to write genre, science fiction and fantasy, mystery, western, Romance. By the way, uh, somebody I used to know, uh, Dean Kuntz, wrote in all genres. He used often used different names, but he wrote in all genres because to be a genre fiction writer means you study the rules of the genre and then you crank it out. Now, Mark, the question is: To what extent do you think this is genre fiction, and to what extent does he? Uh, escaped or at least elevate the genre. Well, that that's the most important thing about uh, anything that's going to uh, endure. This has this is already endured to some degree since 1959. Yeah. To what degree? It, it, it has, he has elevated this into, uh, uh, into something that has endured. <clears throat> but what is really odd about him is that this is very, it's very rare for such a writer to be uh, a one book yeah. person. 
what you usually get is somebody like Coots, who is, I don't know how many books that man has written. I mean, it's, He probably does. Uh, right. I, <laughs> I think we all run out of fingers and toes if we were collectively here. Yeah, well, for my but, uh, sins, I read about 30 of them. Because he was a potential donor for an organization I worked for, and uh, some of them were good uh, in for what they are. Most of them were not so good. But anyway, so back to back to Canticle. What what what? Now let's let's tick off some of these things that are. Uh, for example, you could compare it with the. Uh, Asimov's pseudo-history in the uh, the Foundation books, the Foundation the Foundation of the Galactic Empire books, but there those books are just sort of he makes it up. But all I remember is the ruler of the universe is called Sargon. I thought that was clever, the Sargon. But there's it's very thin. This is this isn't thin, is it? No, <laughs> that's precisely what elevates it. Yeah. That is, there's a deep texture of medieval history and culture which Willer has uh, read and studied. May, may I ask, a, a yeah. personal note, with the first time I read this book, uh, which was uh, about six months before the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> you <laughs> got us. I was 18 years old, but what was, I was uh, around some people, and uh, one fellow who I really only knew for a season there, uh, we were talking things uh, which were to become increasingly more theological. And I really had no acquaintance with things that are really culturally yeah. Catholic. And he steered me on to this book. And just by reading it, uh, it, was, it was a great revelation at that time. It may have even been in the opening months of the Council for all I knew. Yeah. It was going to reverse yeah. things. What, uh, you know, um, I think if I had to pick, you know, in contrasting it with Asimov, I, I read a lot of Isaac Asimov as a, when I was a child, and for me, I liked it. You know, I liked the robot things, and I liked the, uh, I actually liked the second foundation of the Galactic Empire, which I can't imagine anybody in his right mind reading 20 pages of today. But Asimov, it's all a theory, it's all an idea, and it's all very progressive. You know, there's, the world is good, we're, the world's going to have some ups and downs, but technology is going to solve problems. And uh, incredibly boring. It's the worst kind of science fiction. Whereas uh, Canical for Leibowitz is much, it, it, has, uh, it has a moral center as uh, Mark Kennedy was pointing out, that the, it's the moral argument. Other, there are other, I think the great science fiction writers all have a kind of, um, uh, they're all ethical. So Ray Bradbury, for example, is an, is an, is an ethical writer. And, and even when he writes sort of politically, like in the, the, the Martian Chronicles, it was my old uh, friend Alan Carlson who pointed out that it was a metaphor for uh, colonization of the New World and that you run across alien species and you ruin them and they ruin you. So it's a great, by the way, great argument for, uh, against immigration. But uh, what, uh, so we have, we have the, the, the real history, a, a kind of 
history with grit because it's based on uh, actual human historical phenomena in the, in the, in the medieval period. You have, you have uh, the, a serious moral argument going on. What are other things that, that, uh, that uh, make this different from formula science fiction? Well, I'll give you one, um, and that is, in a lot of formula science fiction, the people are cardboard cutouts. The character development is very limited, and the people, you know, it's uh, Biff the Space Ranger, and, and his impossibly beautiful and voluptuous blonde who accompanies him, and they, you know, and there, there's... And the, the, it, interestingly, this, this sort of disappeared in literary science fiction, and it reappears in the awful movies, the, the Star Wars movies, the Aliens movies, you know, all, all of these movies, they, re, they reproduced the cliches of science fiction in the 30s and 40s, and almost none of them pick up on the more interesting science fiction themes of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yes, Mark? Did you ever read any science fiction that discussed the mercy killings or euthanasia? Well, <laughs> can anybody tell me, don't cheat, not somebody I've told this to, can anybody tell me the, the, uh, a, a early, an early great novel by a major novelist in English about, uh, about uh, euthanasia, about uh, killing people? Killing people uh, when they get too old. Trollope. Trollope's next to the last novel, or one of his last three novels, takes place on some place like New Zealand, and they say uh, like 62 is it? <laughs> sorry, oh, sorry, fellas. 62 is it? By the way, he wrote it when he was 62. And uh, then they put you into a nice rest home where you can get everything you want, everything is lovely, and then they turn the gas on. And uh, it is, and it's told by the author of this uh, of the of, of the system. And so it's it's it it is an absolutely it's very late Trollope, nowhere near the richness and depth of his early works, but among his last books was something exploring this. Um, uh, Brave New World. Right. Yes. Yeah. Didn't Erewhon, Does anybody know Erewhon? Samuel Aron Butler, yeah. 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 Not maybe Butler's I mean I I like um what's what's his big what the uh, what's his Way of Total Flesh. Yeah, Way of All Flesh, oh, yes, which is a magnificent book, yeah. But yeah, Erewhon is uh, which is nowhere spelled backwards. Right. Um is uh, has it, but but uh, Huxley's uh, you know the the uh, the the I don't know whether it's for, it's it's whether it's compulsory, but in in, uh, in Brave New World there there's uh, there's right. euthanasia. The the Sav John Savage's mother is euthanized at the at near the very end. Right. I think it's offered the way it is in this book we're reading. Right. Well. Yeah. Yeah. But it's you th things can be off. You know, like. The, yeah, I know. What how you're many saying. people well, are, yeah. have the moral freedom to just? You well, say, well, you're, you know, uh, Grandma, you know, I know you're in pain. We yeah, can make right. things a lot easier, and you could give your grandchildren a college education if you only check out now. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's how it. Well, in 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 uh, in the Netherlands, of course, you don't have to talk to Grandma because you could right. have her declared non compos mentis, 
and then you get to decide in whose interest is an early death. Now, Tom, back to the book we are supposed yeah. to be talking about. The poor girl and her daughter are euthanized to put the doctor out of his misery. Right. Yeah. Because he can't stand their pain. Yeah, I always say euthanasia is a great way of putting other people out of right. my misery. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, let's talk about the, the, the this is in the, the last uh, the last part of the book where the <clears throat> abbot is faced with this these people victims of radiation poisoning and they're setting up a treatment center on the grounds of the abbey and uh, and they are recommending. Uh, to the patients mm -hmm. for those who seem terminal uh, immediate uh, euthanasia. Uh, and the doctor who is the typical uh, doctor in, uh, in all literature, the doctor is always the pragmatist who cares about human suffering. I don't care whether it's William Holden and the horse doctor, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the horse soldiers, horse soldiers yeah. but it's always, it's, it's or, or, or um, the the bones on the uh, on the, they're always religious skeptics. By the way, I think there's a reason for this stereotype because I think the stereotype corresponds to a lot of doctors, not all doctors, obviously, but to a lot of doctors. But uh, and so the abbot is furious, and he tries to tell this young this woman with a, with a child the child is dying and she's dying, don't make this decision. Don't be a collaborator right. in this. Well, is, that, is that technically uh, euthanasia, or is that recommending no, suicide? They're recommending suicide. Although in the case in the case of the child, it's not going to be willing. Right. No. no. And they're not offering painkillers to soothe them out. They're just offering. That's it. Although presumably they would have painkillers available to some extent, but you know. This uh, this society isn't exactly abundant in the, the, all the medical care we have. Well, you wouldn't want to turn them into opioid addiction. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, I would think uh, you know there's this question about well, you can't use heroin on people dying of you know leukemia. Well, can somebody tell me why you why? can't use heroin if you're dying of leukemia? Is there some real rational reason why? You know, you're, you're going to be dead in three months? Well, yes. drug dealer's going to make a living. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, why not have, you know, it was developed as a prescription drug and was down to, I don't know, the 40s. So uh, the, idea, the idea of demonizing a substance uh, because many people misuse it and then say it can't be used medically and... Um, you know, and, and I know there's a lot of nonsense about medical marijuana, which is really, for the most part, recreational. But it is true there are medical conditions like cataracts and things where doctors have strongly recommended this. So, uh, but anyway, so is is would anybody like to defend the uh, the the doctor or the government for? Uh, Trying to ease these people from uh, their pain. I thought the doctor, the, the doc, I wouldn't call him a a, a, a zealot by any no, means. No, he would, no, He would listen to Father's uh, Abbot Zerchi's yeah. arguments, and then he'd come back with a rejoinder about this and the, and 
there was just they just could not meet on this but it was, at least it was an intelligent conversation it was a doctor is not demonized as either evil or a fool and when the abbot punches him out in this altercation on on the highway the doctor refuses to press charges much to the disgust the doctor is a sincere honorable person yes but what the abbot doesn't he begins to touch upon but doesn't really make clear is look you belong to one world, I belong to another. In my world, life is precious, whether it's the life of a mutant, the life of a dying person, or my life. This is, this is a gift of God, it's not the gift of the government. And we therefore oppose dropping nuclear weapons on people, we oppose all of this stuff. That you work within a secular anti-Christian regime which is now caused a, is now on the verge of causing the second Holocaust destroying the human race. That is that is the government you work for. That is the way of life you work for. The abbot doesn't really he begins to touch upon this, but he doesn't really make the argument. That it seems to me is I don't care what you you are working for the government. This is like saying uh, uh, look, I am, a, I am a good Nazi. I, I really only want to help the Jews the best I can. And part of helping them the best I can is, well, we'll you know, it's, isn't it better that they be given, that they be uh, gassed than it is that we beat them to death? Well, yeah, but you're a doctor. So, um, and I don't mean to overuse the, uh, the Hitler analogy, but the fact is that what... A regime that is evil is evil, and this regime that has evolved, which is willing to use to create this nuclear holocaust, this is evil. The doctor is part of that regime, and then he has the nerve to, to take to moral high ground, I'm opposed to suffering. You're, you are responsible for this. Well, also, Zerchi uh, uh, was in a... In a he was in a position of um, not power, but the responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He wasn't arguing from his individual right, right. But as a as a prior of this abbot, yeah, abbot of this Catholic ground, he couldn't allow it to be. No used. way I can. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, I have read a fair number of Catholic commentaries and intellectuals and essays and things. I have never heard this book mentioned, which yeah. surprises me. Have you, do you know of any intelligent no. Catholic commentators that haven't? No, that's interesting. No, I don't know. No. I don't know. Seems to be a naturalist. This may be this. Now, our children, they were given this book at Boylan Catholic High School. Yes. But I think they were given the book because they were the, the same leftists who control public schools control the Catholic education. So I suspect it was just to say uh, we can't, we shouldn't, we should surrender to the Russians. And I suspect that uh, because again, that is the that is unfortunately uh, the alternative. You know, Martin Luther once said famously. Mankind is like a drunken peasant riding a donkey. You know, he slopes over to one side, and then he wakes up, and he tries to straighten himself up, so he slopes over to the other side. 
In other words, it's always, you know, from Puritanism to Libertinism back to Puritanism. You can never have, you know, some Aristotelian, rational, classical mean. Well, of course, I would say to Dr. Luther, especially if you look, cut yourself off from the great Mediterranean civilization uh, of the Greeks and Romans, which whose last vestiges were represented in the Catholic Church in, in, in Luther's time. But it is, it's an accurate observation, that is, we tend to go from one extreme uh, to, to, oh, to another. We have the power to do nothing else but that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting how, uh, how at least in all the great philosophical systems of antiquity, including the Stoics and the Epicureans, they come out on maybe too far on one side or the other, but basically, you know, with Aristotle and, and with, with some of the others, you're, 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 you're looking for a well-balanced, well-rounded life down the middle rather than devoting yourself to insanity. And so, for example, you know, the, the early, a lot of early, early Christian theologians, they look and they say, well, these pagans, they just fornicate, they commit adultery, they do all these things. No sex, that's the answer. No sex. So Tertullian and, and the Montanists uh, in a number of... Sex is itself evil. And even if you're married, you should... The minute you become a Christian, you should take a vow of celibacy. You're just as crazy as the people on the other side. And uh, that, unfortunately... Yeah, yeah. And that is the history of the human race. But uh, anyway, uh, the abbot knows he's gone too far, uh, that is, in punching out the doctor. But does anybody, uh, will anybody make a case for the doctor's ethic that helping people to stop pain is the real answer? Because the doctor is allowed to present a rational and decent case. These people are not going to live. No. They're going to have a short, miserable life. Right. Yeah. With great pain. What's the difference? What's the difference in a few days? Well, I think, yeah, well, what is the difference? Yes, my dear? Uh, I remind you of the end of the section before, where the poet is shot through the gut in the musket ball. Now, he is dying a not very comfortable death. No. He's shot in the gut. And uh, he's going to die, and he knows he's going to die. And I believe uh, Abbot Zerke's last advice to the poor woman, he would not advise against giving painkillers to the baby and her, but that, you know, you are going to die, just accept it. And somehow the government wants these people who are going to die, and the doctor is part of this. That's, his, that's one of his problems, is that, you know, they're going to die. He doesn't want to see them suffering. So he will go along with the idea that we'll just do them in. Yeah, no, it is an interesting con. The poet dies as a man. Right. And the doctor wants these people to die as, as uh, victims who accept uh, their fate. Right. It's not, 
by the way, I want to be very clear. I don't think that in a non-Christian country you should have laws against suicide or assisted suicide uh, of any kind because the ethic that opposes that is only embraced by a small minority of the people. If you're going to, if you're going to accept this, this ridiculous theory of democracy by which, we're, by which these people say we're governed, mm. then really there is no moral objection. And anything you can do to get the government out of private life, say you do it or you don't do it, w would, be, would be better. But the, a, the Abbott's case argument is with the mother herself, not to collaborate with the evil that has been visited upon them. And I think that's a very powerful argument. And um, that's why, you know, strong painkillers, whether heroin or whatever, but still accept that suffering is part of human life. And because uh, it's the Catholic position, is to offer it up to God. And the, the woman says, what, do you yes. think that makes make God happy to see my baby suffer? Well, that is, unfortunately, if you teach people this kindergarten morality that God makes everything happen, and therefore, if you're nice to God, he'll be nice to you, and you'll be rich and famous, and you won't get cancer. Yes, Pastor Osteen. Yeah. Right. This is a very evil, but, but it's not just Joel Osteen and the, and the profit-driven life uh, guru and all these people. It's, also, it's, it's, it's all through the Catholic Church today. And the fact, if you really believe that, that, that the creator of the universe is saying, you know, this guy didn't go to Mass today, so I think I'll fix him. Whereas this guy, he may be a disgusting hypocrite, but he says the rosary twice a day, so I'm going to make him rich and he won't get cancer. This is, this is a repulsive notion. But it's what people grow up believing. I can't tell you, how, how many people do we meet in our church who say things like, well... I don't know why God chose to take our child from us. What are you talking about? You think God is, is some kind of Nazi concentration camp guard? You think he's working? He's working for uh, for Scotland? He's just saying, "Oh, let's see who I can murder today." This is monstrous. Well, his name is written in the Book of Life. <laughs> It's, uh, it's very Calvinistic, no offense, Mark Kennedy, it's very Calvinistic, this idea that somehow it's all, you know, at, you know it, it, it's, it's Islamic. The Muslims don't believe in intermediate causation. Mm -hmm. So whatever happens, happens because it's the will of Allah that you stumbled and fell and got run over by a bus. Inshallah. Yeah, that's it. And uh, this is monstrous. Greek pagans didn't believe this kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Most, I don't think even ancient Jews believe this kind of nonsense, but, but we, and we allow religious people to say this without, they go to a, well, we know the Lord, the Lord took my child. No, the Lord didn't take your child. Your child got hit by a bus. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> as background, yes, Mark? So, several times in the book, uh, in passages, it was mentioned that, um, I don't know if it was the Stoics first, or Aquinas said something about 
na the, na uh, the human nature given to us by God allow us to to suffer have the capacity to suffer and it doesn't mean it, it which so if, if your suffering doesn't mean let's terminate right away yeah you can you can survive it human nature has that potentiality yeah. in it that uh, that 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 it's a uh... It, 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 you do have that in the Stoics, and it becomes part of Catholic theology, and it is there in uh, it's there in uh, Gregory the Great. It's certainly there in uh, Thomas Aquinas, and that uh, that it, it it becomes like uh, a test that you don't really want to have to take, but uh, that you but sometimes these tests are thrust upon us. And, uh, you know, uh, Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane says, you know, let this chalice pass, if it be thy will. And no one, I think it, uh, which sort of precludes the idea, I want to go out and be a martyr, please, you know, set me on fire and do all sorts of terrible things to me. That's a very bad idea. But when these things happen to you, then you have to somehow accept that there's an order in the universe. And God, speaking, speaking as a, a coward who hates physical pain, I find this argument is terrifying. Uh, and I have no idea how I would act at, uh, under these circumstances that I don't prejudge others. And I, don't, and I think it's, it, one should beware of being a condemning in too harsh terms simple people who are facing terrible problems like this. On the other hand, uh, a government, a medical profession, and churches, etc., who say, well, your pain level is at three every day, so why don't you just check out and, by the way, uh, save a lot of money on the insurance. And that, that, that's the world we're facing. We're not, most of us are not dying of radiation sickness and terrible cancer. So, time to wind it up and then we'll, we'll, we can have a little drink afterwards. But, uh, the, the theme that uh, what came up in our initial discussion, which is that the th the th one of the things that makes this book so valuable is that it raises very serious moral questions and even when it uh, proposes a traditional Christian answer as near the end, even there, the, for example, Abbot Zerchi's uh, uh, intransigence and anger is viewed as sinful. And so the prior tells them, you know, what do you want to kill this person? You want to kill the doctor? No, is that it? And so uh, it's again, there is this ba a balanced understanding of human suffering and human pain. And uh, I don't think there's that much like this in modern fiction, no. uh, whether genre fiction uh, or, uh, or anything else. And by the way, I think this is a piece of genre fiction that breaks the genre. So. Any any final comments from anyone? Mark. 
Uh, my old boss at the bookstore in New Orleans, I mentioned to him that we had read this book and that uh, 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 Jark, as a matter of fact, told me, mentioned it to me that he had uh, committed suicide. Yeah. And um, I mentioned, said that to the boss and he said, well, he's sort of like that poet Randall Gerald. Yeah. And Gerald evidently was a uh, tail gunner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now his most famous poem is the death of the ball turret gunner. Yes, it was about four lines long. Yeah. Yeah. He's a poet I've never uh, appreciated very much, and uh, there's there's good stuff there. I really should should go back and look at it. What I read about Miller was he called the police and said there's a dead man. <laughs> God, this oh my. at his address. And when the police showed up, they found him dead. Was this, was this premeditated? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, oh, Art, you have well, a... I just wanted to say, my uh, uh, rummaging around about information about Miller, I uh, read across something I thought for just a second, of course, and, I, and I said, obviously. This is this book was a great favorite of Walker Percy's. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it makes perfect sense. And clearly, uh, Walker's uh, love in the ruins. Yeah, would have been uh, when I gave a little talk in Chicago. We were giving uh, Walker Percy an award. And I built my talk around Love in the Ruins, and I cited all these things. And when I came down and sat down uh, and talked with him after, he said, Tom, I don't remember anything about that. <laughs> That's the terrible thing. You write too much, and you don't remember any of it. Thank you. Thank you all for coming.